0: Choir, awesome as always. If you have your Bible open to Acts chapter 4, not if, but I know you do, I should say take your Bible open to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have one with you, pull out your smartphone and download it real quick. Dig a little deeper into Acts chapter 4 this morning and <clears throat> looking at the boldness of the disciples or apostles as they continue to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel. You know, when you look at the book of Acts and you study through it and look at the church history, the expansion of the church is, is truly a God-sized task. It's amazing um, just to see how the Bible takes us from the end of the gospels, where there's about 120 believers, uh, to the point, to Acts chapter 4, the beginning of Acts 4, we have over 5,000. Uh, that's a... a really quick expansion, and it would drive any pastor nuts to try to figure out a building program uh, that quickly. That's why they didn't need that right now. So, But in Acts 4, verse 12, Peter and John have been put on trial for preaching the name of Jesus and for proclaiming the gospel, mainly dealing with the resurrection. Uh, The guys in power, the the Sadducees, don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe it's going to happen even at the end of time. And so Peter and John are are arrested and put on trial, and that's where we step in in verse 12, where Peter says, at the end of his statement, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Let me remind you that exactly what Peter said is absolutely true. There is no other way to the forgiveness of your sins and to a right standing before God Than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who paid the price for your sin. There is no other way. There is no other government. There's no other society, no other person in this world, ever in all of history, that was on the cross to pay the penalty of God's wrath for your sin. He took your place. That if you would call on Him and believe in Him and trust in what He did on the cross and in the power of the resurrection, you would be saved. You would find eternal life and you would find new life. In Him, That's exactly what Peter had been proclaiming. And now these Jesus guys are stirring up trouble for the religious leaders. They don't like it. They're about to lose control, they feel. And so they've got to try to squelch this, what they are going to understand as an open rebellion. One that could pull power away from them as they were uh, sharing that power with Rome. Or Rome had shared some with them. They didn't want to lose that. And so by proclaiming the name of Jesus, they feel like they're threatened. Let's pick up in verse 13, if you would stand with me as I read from the word of God this morning. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the story continues. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you Rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray you would speak clearly to us. Speak truth into our life, Lord. What we do not know, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. What we are not yet, I pray you will make us for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Obviously, one of the reasons why the church has expanded so quickly in Acts is first and foremost because it's a movement of God. We understand God is always at work around us. And he invites us to join him in that work, and Peter and John are obviously a part of that work, having received the commission from Jesus himself. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus told his disciples, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's the mission of God, the mission of God to go, or as you go, make disciples, baptize, teach them, do all these things. And so... As Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. This is exactly what Peter and John are doing. The other disciples are there too. They're not neglecting that command. They're just not in the part of the story at this point. But what we need to understand is that as we come to Christ and he's changing our life, that telling others about the way, that is Jesus, is a part of our spiritual DNA. We are called into that same commissioning, into that same mission of God. We may, we're, we're not gonna be a Peter or a John, or we may not be someone like them who stands before thousands and proclaims Jesus, but it doesn't have to be that. We just need to be faithful to the one who needs to hear Jesus and needs to hear about him. The heart of our mission is to proclaim Jesus as the way. That is exactly what we are to do. And when we follow that mission and we follow it obediently, we know from scripture and from Jesus himself that there will be opposition. And that's where we are in the middle of Acts chapter four. When we follow the mission, there's gonna be opposition because in Christ, you've joined a team that the world does not like. You've joined a team that will always face opposition. Even though, even though we know the end of the story in the book of Revelation, we know that Christ will overcome and has overcome the opposition. We know that they will still oppose Christ and his church. So it's no surprise that Peter and John find themselves on trial. It's not the first time. It's not the last time that they'll be on trial. Let's look at this again, verse thirteen. When they observed the boldness of Peter, now last week they already asked the question we looked at in verse uh, verse seven: What power or in what name have you done this? That's referring to the healing of the lame man. By what name or power have you done this? And so then Peter gives his uh, brief sermon there, that uh, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the name of Jesus to the religious leadership. Now they have witnessed the boldness of Peter and the boldness of John, and they see, Luke tells us, that they are uneducated and untrained. Peter stood before this Sanhedrin, this court made of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, everybody who should have known who Jesus was and what God was up to and what God was doing, He stood before them and specifically told them that they crucified the Messiah, yet God raised him from the dead, that this Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of all that God is doing, and that salvation is found in no one else but in Jesus Christ alone. And oh, by the way, yes, he is alive. Now we get their response. Notice that Luke says, they are surprised or they're dumbfounded, really, by the boldness of Peter and John. Peter and John were simple fishermen. Now, if you're a fisherman, don't take offense at that. Doesn't mean you're simple minded and dumb. Actually, I've seen all of the equipment that you guys use, and I'm, I, I don't know how to use it, so maybe I'm the dumb one here. That's not what he's talking about. They're uneducated and untrained in the matters of religion. They haven't been to seminary. They haven't been to school like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees or the scribes. They're uneducated in that way. So why are they surprised? Because Peter and John are speaking so clearly and confidently and clearly and with courage before this religious trial. I mean, if you're standing before a court of scholars and they're asking you these questions, one would expect that you're shaking and maybe your voice is a little bit nervous. It's kind of like being in front of you guys sometimes. But they're bold. And it says that they observed their boldness. That word is only used when speaking publicly and used when speaking with courage and confidence and clarity. But notice why. It's not that Peter and Luke... Are educated in how to give public speaking they're not they're uneducated you don't do a whole lot of public speaking when you're on a fishing boat casting a net maybe you're calling to the fishy here fishy fishy but that's probably not going to work either is it didn't ever work for me but why why the why is found when Luke says they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus that's the key Peter and John had been with Jesus. Everything they had said, everything they had done up to this point, is an exact reflection of who Jesus was and what he did. And that's what it is to proclaim Jesus. They're bold because they're, one, they're filled with the Spirit. Let's not neglect that. They're absolutely filled with the Spirit at this moment. It's not that they hadn't been before, but the Spirit always indwells. But in this moment, there's a special empowering for Peter to speak publicly before this crew, this, this, uh, this court. And now they know that they that, that what Peter is speaking about, he knows personally. He has been with this man personally. They had been with Jesus. So it's clear to the Sanhedrin, to the court, that there's a sense of credibility here to these guys. Why? Because they had been with Jesus and they, they see that in them. They hear what they're saying. These uneducated fishermen were quoting scripture. They're talking about godly things that is a shock to the Sanhedrin because how, how could they know? Well, here's how they know. It's because God will use anyone who will spend time with him, listen to him, and follow Jesus. If you will follow faithfully, God will use you in ways that are dumbfounding to our ordinary lives. Extraordinary ways. You don't need a formal religious education I'm saying that as one that has one. I was blessed and fortunate to have one. But you may not have that opportunity. God may not call you to that. But God can and will use you if you spend time with him, you listen to the word, and you follow Jesus. God will absolutely use you. How do I know that? Well, look at those he used to write the rest of the New Testament. You've got the Apostle Paul. We'll call him the Ph.D., He has the formal religious education. He was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a scholar. Jesus called him, saved him, called him out of his Phariseeism into a life of following him and proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Then you've got Peter and John. We'll call these guys, maybe our high school dropouts, maybe our high school diplomas, certainly we'll call them the GEDs, okay? Nothing wrong with that. Look at what they're doing. Look at how God uses them in this moment. Then you've got somebody like Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Luke is a medical doctor, writing things, uh, 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 biblical, godly words for us to even write, uh, read 2,000 years later. God used a medical doctor to pen two, word, two, two letters two books of the New Testament. And yes, God can even use tax collectors. He called Matthew. Follow me. Matthew left everything to follow Jesus and wrote a gospel for us. You got blue collar, white collar, probably got a few rednecks in there. Amen. Why? Because they spent time with, they listened to, and they followed Jesus. That's why. The religious leaders hear their testimony and they see this crippled man standing with them. This man is the one who they probably pass by every day going into the temple back and forth. They've seen him there. And the scripture says that he was over 40 years old. They've seen him, they know him. And now they cannot deny that that crippled beggar is now standing before them completely healed. The proof is right there. You might remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 15. He told his disciples then, I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That is happening right here in Acts chapter four. Everything they're saying, everything God is using them to do, the adversary, the opposition cannot resist or contradict. In fact, the decision that they make, what are we going to do with these guys? He says in verse 16, what what are we going to do with them? There's a sign. We We can't deny it. It's clear to everyone in Jerusalem, so we can't deny it. They'll, they'll see right through us if we deny this. Let's just threaten them and tell them to shut up. No more talking about Jesus. So that's the decision they come to. No more teaching, no more speaking, no more nothing in the name of Jesus. And they are never allowed to speak to anyone about Jesus. No more public proclamation, no more individual conversations, Certainly, we don't want any more of that healing stuff going on. And that's the decision that they're given. So the, verse 18, they called them, uh, call them, they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, what if you were told the very same thing? What if, by some chance, we could no longer rely on the Bill of Rights and the freedom of religion in our country, and we were ordered to not speak the name of Jesus or teach the name of Jesus or gather in the name of Jesus any longer. That would create a, what Henry Black would be called a crisis of belief. In his uh, study, Experiencing God, he coined that phrase, the crisis of belief. What the council, this religious council, this group made up of religious theologians, these scholars, what they're demanding is that Peter and John disobey God and follow the counsel. And that's exactly how Peter responds in verse 19 when he says we cannot stop. Look at verse 19, he says, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. They're gonna appeal that on that level. You're asking us to disobey God. You religious leaders, you're asking us to disobey what God has clearly called us to do. Of course, the conclusion must be that they obey God over man. And that would have to be our conclusion as well. The second opposition or or, uh, comeback retort to their demand is this conviction that Peter and John share, as well as the other apostles that we must speak about what we have seen and heard. He says, we are unable to stop. Your translation may say, cannot stop. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It changed their life that much to see their Savior, their rabbi, their teacher, the Lamb of God, hang on the cross and die and to be raised on the third day. To experience the resurrection, to see Jesus walk through the wall in his appearance, to see the scars, to see Jesus over on the shoreline, to hear Jesus say, hey, knuckleheads, cast your net on the other side, and to recognize immediately, that's Jesus. And to do that, and to see this great harvest of fish come in the boat, and then to get to the shoreline and have breakfast with him. Talk about a morning devotion time. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They have no other option. They have no choice but to obey God and to obey the command and to be on mission, the mission of God. And so they had seen him. They had eaten with him. They would walked and talked with him. And this changed their life. Now the spirit of God is indwelling them and has empowered them in this moment. They cannot silence themselves with this gag order. The glory of the risen Christ is undeniable to them. And they've got to share it. Well, what about us? When is it right to disobey civil authority? Is there ever a moment where we say we cannot obey what the government is telling us to do? Because if you read Scripture, there's a couple of places like Romans 13 where Paul writes that we should obey our government authorities. We should because God has put them in power over us, helps create order. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us to pray for our religion like we need to be praying now more than ever for our religion government authorities But there is a time when we are called upon to disobey the government and it is only when human law defies divine law We have we have to be very careful with that it's a very fine line and I think even in the covid season there's been some that have abused that standard But we've got to be very careful but it's very clearly there. It is more important for us to obey the Lord because following Jesus is always the right path, always. You'll never be wrong following Jesus, ever. In this context, these men were ordered to stop teaching and preaching the name of Jesus. When I say things like there have been some that have abused that, I'm not lumping John MacArthur and some of those that have pushed back on the government for shutting churches down in this time. I think that was wrong. I'll be honest, I think it's wrong. I don't think the government has anything to say to the church about when we can and cannot meet. We are ordered to gather by our Savior and that's where I stand on that. You may disagree and that's fine. I'm standing on where I believe my conviction is. In this context, they were threatened to not speak the name or preach the name of Jesus, but they cannot do that, why? Because Jesus told them directly, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And as you go make disciples, you can't make a disciple with your mouth closed. Not gonna happen. So in this moment, I mentioned a while ago, this crisis of belief. Let me think about it. Here's a definition of what the crisis of belief is according to Henry Blackaby. He says it's God's invitation for you to work with him will always lead you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. It's gonna be up there in a moment. This moment created a crisis of belief. And I believe for us today, it would do the same, that we say God is always at work around us. And when he invites you to join him in that work, it creates for you a moment where what you and how you respond says what you believe about God, okay? When God invites you to work with him, it leads you to this moment of decision that requires faith and action, And what you do or do not do says what you believe about God. Listen, God is always inviting us to join him in his work, making disciples, to be on mission with him. And he wants to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Can God do that? Can can God do the seemingly impossible through an ordinary life? Absolutely, he can. But the way we respond to that invitation reveals what we believe about God, regardless of what we say. Blackaby would conclude that point by saying that there are so many people in the church that miss out experiencing God's power at work through them because we don't follow through in faith and take action. Well, what would you have done in this moment? What will you do in this moment? I think the church in the United States is at a critical moment. There are many denominations out there, many, who have walked away from the gospel, don't preach the gospel anymore, preaching other things, not even necessarily health and wealth and prosperity, they're just preaching some self-help kind of stuff, and they've welcomed a view of all roads lead into heaven, and you just completely deny the gospel if that's where you are. So the church is at a critical moment in our country. And what I say is when we look into the book of Acts, that surrendered church, the surrender to the lordship of Christ must always respond in faith and action. That we cannot and will not be stopped speaking the name of Jesus. What have you got to say about him? Have you spent time with him in his word? That there is a testimony about your life. Some of you have shared those stories with me and I, I, I believe you, absolutely. You have spent time with him and you do. I hear the way you speak. And I hear the things you talk about and I believe that you spend time with you, absolutely. But we've got to spend time with him so that we've got something to share and so that when people come at us Would we even be opposed by what we proclaim? People will not hear the gospel with your life doing the talking. Letting my life do the talking is not best in a hostile world. And the Holy Spirit will not empower you to be silent about Jesus. Now, you don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be the Apostle Peter or Paul. You just need to be faithful. Be faithful. Why? Because he's got you. That's what the crisis of belief moment reveals. Do you trust him and that he is with you, just like he told Peter and John and the rest? At the end of the Great Commission, he said, I am with you always, even still to this day. The surrendered church must have as its primary aim the pleasing of God, which is the proclamation, the speaking of the gospel, preaching of the gospel, and ministry of the gospel. Friends, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, with that in mind, the church goes boldly Forward you look at the following verses in verse 23, they released them, they went back to their own people, that is the church, and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, verse 25, why do the Gentiles rage and do the peoples plot in uh, futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and his Messiah. And they they continue to pray. But look at verse 29. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God. Boldly. Friend, the surrendered church is a praying church, and that's exactly what they do. They go back to the gathering of the church, driven by the mission of God, and they prayed. I mean, shouldn't the praise team have gotten up and started another song or maybe had a strategy session or something, right? A planning meeting or something. Maybe a potluck thrown in there for something. You know, whatever. Like, but they just go back and they pray? Really? Absolutely. 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 They did what many of us might be reluctant to do. It might, even be not, might not even be our first thought, which is to pray. There's a couple of observations about that prayer. One, you see that they were united. They raised their voices together. It was a faithful response to what God was doing and what God had brought them through. It's a prayer that's grounded in the attributes of God when they, they cry out to him or pray out to him. master. Sovereign God, sovereign Lord, your translation may use, same same understanding, same meaning. Or a simple reminder that God is in control, absolutely never lost control, which should bring us great comfort, should bring us peace, should bring us a sense of security, that He's got us, right? He is our good shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Why? Because he's got me. And then the prayer is also grounded in scripture. Psalm chapter two. I would encourage you to go back and read Psalm chapter two this week. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This seeming this, this scheme conspiracy by the nations to try to overthrow the Lord's anointed Messiah, that would be Jesus. Yes, they tried. Yes, they failed. I love verse 4 of Psalm chapter 2. It says this the one enthroned, that is God. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. As if the nations conspiring against the Lord's anointed Messiah could somehow overcome. His plan. In that psalm, the descendant of David, which is Jesus, would suffer rejection but emerge victorious. We see that at the cross and the resurrection. And yes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So let that truth, no matter what you face or no matter where you are following in Christ, you know, if you're in this moment where you know you've got something to do, God is calling you to do it, you're in that crisis of belief moment Let that reminder embolden you and encourage you today to go and do what God has called you to do. And then you'll notice that the prayer is driven by the mission of God. Notice what they did not pray for. God removed the opposition from us. That's not what they prayed for. Consider their threats and remove them from us. No. Consider their threats and grant that your servants speak your word with boldness. Consider their threats and give me more opportunity to speak with boldness. More boldness meant more gospel preaching, more gospel ministry, more lives being changed, the word spreading. In every generation, the gospel is going to cut deep into what the culture says is normal. It's going to cut deep into what the culture says is right. And it's going to be contrary to what culture says is even godly. But the gospel is meant to save the gospel is meant to change. It's the change that changes everything. And so we'll, we will face opposition. But that we would pray for boldness and courage and mind and heart and voice. To stand with the confidence in the sovereignty of God that says, yet not I, but through Christ in me, I go forward. How strange and divine that I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The dark, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is is displayed to this I hold my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead the night has been won and I shall overcome yet not I but through Christ in me no fate I dread I know I am forgiven the future is sure The price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released and I can sing. I am free. Yet not I but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. And when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let it not be said of Coastal Oaks Church or you that we have become more concerned with our social standing, our social media status, or our reputations than about Christ and his mission. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, Paul wrote in Romans, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. He is with you. And as you go this morning, you go to the mission field and you go in faith and action to boldly proclaim Jesus And as we take that stand, we answer the crisis of belief in faith and action. And our testimony is, yet not I, but through Christ in me.